listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, October 2nd, 2022 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's episode of Labor Express, as the window for early voting in Illinois opens, we'll hear about a potential new state constitutional amendment that will be put before voters this general election in Illinois. Amendment 1 on the 2022 general election ballot called the Illinois Right to Collective Bargaining Amendment, or more commonly the Workers' Rights Amendment, would amend the Illinois state constitution, adding the following language to the state Bill of Rights. Employees shall have the fundamental right to organize and to bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing for the purpose of negotiating wages, hours, and working conditions, and to protect their economic welfare and safety and work. No law shall be passed that interferes with, negates, or diminishes the right of employees to organize and bargain collectively over their wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment and workplace safety, including any law or ordinance that prohibits the execution or application of agreements between employers and labor organizations that represent employees requiring membership in an organization as a condition of employment. In short, the amendment would enshrine in the state constitution the right to organize and collectively bargain for Illinois workers and prevent the passage of future anti-worker legislation, like so-called right-to-work laws, which have been passed in so many states. We'll hear from Robert Bruno, a professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign's School of Labor and Employment Relations. He's also the director of the Project for Middle Class Renewal. And Frank Manzo, the executive director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. They are co-authors of a recently released study of the proposed amendment that provides ample evidence that passage of the amendment would have a significantly positive economic impact both for Illinois working people and for the state as a whole. I spoke with both men by phone a week ago, and on tonight's program, I'll air that interview for you. Also on tonight's program, what are the working conditions for railroad workers that nearly led to the first national railroad strike in 30 years? And has the strike truly been averted or just postponed? Jonah Furman of Labor Notes will offer his insights on this potentially historic situation. But first, some international labor news. I said uh, several times this earlier this year that I was going to endeavor to include more international labor news on the program, something I feel that we've done a little too little of in the last couple of years. We kind of got away from that in the last couple of years, so we're going to try to make sure not uh, to let that slip again. Well, our Canadian friends at Radio Labor are back from their summer hiatus, and in the following excerpt from their most recent edition of the Solidarity News World Report, We'll hear from a Colombian labor lawyer about the historic elections in Colombia this past June, which brought to power the first left-wing government in that country's modern history, and what that means for Colombian workers and unions in the nation that has been notorious as the most dangerous place in the world to be a trade unionist for decades. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, September 23rd, 2022. I'm Mark Belanger. For years, one of the most dangerous countries for unionists has been Colombia. But with the recent election of a progressive leftist government, there is hope in the air for not only labor unions, but democracy as well. To help explain the events in Colombia, the Solidarity Center in the United States produced a podcast featuring a labor lawyer and activist in the country. The podcast was hosted by the executive director of the center, Shauna Baderblau. Mary Laura Perdomo, a labor lawyer and trade unionist in Colombia, 
tells us how unions, together with young people and Indigenous and Black communities, achieved the election of the country's first progressive government. Mary Laura has been an integral part of the multi-year democratic process that unified people around their basic rights like decent wages, accessible health care, and an end to discrimination, and the violence that has visited union leaders far too often in South America. Let's hear now from Mary Laura, my sister at the Solidarity Center and a lawyer at the International Lawyers Assisting Workers, or ILAW Network. Hi, everybody. Pleasure to be here. My name is Mary Laura Perdomo. I'm a labor lawyer from Colombia, and actually I'm the regional coordinator for Latin America and the Caribbean for the ILO Network, which is a global network of lawyers assisting workers. This year, we had two very important elections in Colombia. We had our elections to the Congress of the Republic, which is our parliament, and we had our presidential elections. And for the first time in Colombia's history, we elected a leftist government. But not only that, we also elected as vice president a woman who comes from the one of the most marginalized sectors of society in Colombia, an environmental warrior, a black woman. And it's, I can't stress this enough, it's the first time in the history of Colombia that we've chosen an alternative, progressive, leftist government. There are several factors that explain why we got to elect this leftist government and why we have such an environmental warrior as a vice president and someone who also fights for the rights of those who have been marginalized. The first factor is that there was a big social revolution, and it's part of a chain of big social upheaval that was happening in all over Latin America, and that changed the uh, the, uh, the the proportion of leftist governments in, in the region. So it all started with a big strike that was actually called by the unions of the, in the country, and in the uh, last months of 2019. And so in 2021, the unions decided to call again for another strike that was fed by the, the uh, 2019 strike that had been cut short by the pandemic. So this big social energy took over the cities, took over the whole country. And when they saw that the government was doing absolutely nothing to respond to all this, this pushed, this pushed Colombian people over the edge. That's when they decided that they needed to change everything that had not been working until then. The two big strikes called by, uh, called in 2019 and 2021 by the unions respond to three big reasons, I think. The first is that the government decided to implement a series of reforms in labor that just wanted to create a parallel system for social security that was going to turn work into an even more precarious and more flimsy situation for many of the workers. Second, they wanted to launch a series of fiscal reforms or tax reforms that meant that they were going to raise the taxes for the poorest households while lowering the taxes for the powerful corporations and the rich people that had put the previous president in power. And the third reason, I think, is the the anti-social violence that we've been seeing in Colombia, in which, because in Colombia, union leaders are still being murdered for what they do, together with the anti-social violence that we're seeing and the fact that the government was trying to deepen the inequality with the proposals that they have put forth, that made people realize that they, they couldn't take it anymore. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News Forum by Working People. 
Early voting in Illinois in the 2022 general election opened up this past Thursday, so I thought it really important here in Labor Express to discuss a historic it seems like I'm saying that word a lot tonight. It's historic, but there, there truly are historic opportunity for Illinois voters to ensure the rights of workers in the state to form unions and collectively bargain. When filling out your ballot this year, look for Amendment 1, the Workers' Rights Amendment. If passed, this would amend the Illinois Bill of Rights to include language that specifically protects the right of workers to organize and collectively bargain, as well as prevent any future Illinois state legislators from passing laws that restrict that right. The Illinois Economic Policy Institute, in partnership with the Project for Middle Class Renewal and the University of Illinois School of Labor and Employment Relations, released a study in August on the likely economic impact of passage of the amendment. The study is entitled, The Workers' Rights Amendment and Its Impact on Protecting Quality Jobs and Essential Industries in Illinois. The study concludes that the benefits of passage of the amendment are substantial, both for Illinois working people as well as for the state budget. I reached out to two of the study's authors, Robert Bruno, a professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign School of Labor and Employment Relations. He's also the director of the Project for Middle Class Renewal. And Frank Manzo, the executive director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. I talked to them both by phone last week to discuss the amendment and their study. The first voice you'll hear is that of old friend of Labor Express Radio, Bob Bruno, responding to my question about the purpose of the amendment. After a follow-up question, you will hear the voice of Frank Manzo. I should also note that a third individual, Grace Dawn, a research associate at the Illinois Economic Policy Institute, also worked on the study but was not part of the interview. Um, Yes, you're correct. This is uh, a measure uh, that would really serve as a a defense uh, against an effort of of the political um, dynamics to uh, impose right-to-work laws or to uh, limit that ability to organize, but it certainly goes beyond just the uh, right to form a union. Um, it also protects the collective bargaining process. It allows the employer and the workers to voluntarily uh, negotiate items, issues that are relevant to their uh, to their relationship. Uh, and in that regard, uh, it goes beyond just acknowledging the right of workers to organize, but uh, it protects that collective bargaining process um, uh, and, and allows the workers and the employer really to negotiate uh, what the working terms uh, would be and, and, and not allow uh, the state uh, through some sort of legislative move uh, to limit what they could be discussing, what they could be negotiating. Right, right. Now, I understand there are already a few other states, I think Hawaii, Missouri, New York, that have in their constitutions a similar kind of protections for the right to organize. But but I guess this proposal in Illinois would actually go beyond even what's in those uh, constitutions. Is that correct? Um, yeah, it, this would, by, would be by far the strongest uh, right to collective bargaining uh, in the country. It would, it would follow... Um, Kind of in the footsteps of those three other states, but but it kind of goes a step further in saying that the um, well the workers' rights amendment would pre- prevent the passage of any law that diminishes the right to organize and bargain collectively over wages, hours, uh, working conditions, and, and workplace safety. So it, it's the the right to collective bargaining and organize would be elevated to a fundamental right that would apply to all workers, um, just like the freedom of speech and freedom of assembly apply to everyone. 
Um, this would, would, would guarantee the freedom to unionize and bargain uh, for all employees. Uh, but it also goes a step further in that no law shall be passed that interferes with, negates, or diminishes that right. Um, so lawmakers in Springfield cannot, for example, uh, enact a law that reduces the items that teachers or police officers can bargain over, which has happened in other states, including neighboring uh, Wisconsin. Um, but they also cannot uh, allow private sector workers to receive all those union services, benefits, and representation for free through uh, free rider laws or so-called right-to-work laws um, So without paying anything for them. So those are just kind of two examples uh, that take this amendment a, a step further. I see. Okay. Now, given, you know, the fact that uh, Illinois is relatively union friendly compared to, you know, many other states, um, why do you think this is a necessary step here in Illinois? You know, we need to be attentive, uh, frankly, to how political electoral dynamics can really thwart the will of the majority of workers. It is through the electoral process that generates legislative outcomes that shapes the regulatory environment that that workers um, uh, operate within and that workers and employers uh, have to negotiate in. Uh, And while you could have a workforce uh, and really a, a, a class of employers Um, who acknowledge and respect the collective bargaining process, uh, as was the case in Illinois uh, during the years that uh, Bruce Rauner was governor. Uh, You you had an effort made uh, from the executive branch to thwart the will of those workers and employers by uh, interfering uh, in that uh, that relationship. And uh, And so we had a situation where it, it was potentially, potentially, we could have gotten, uh, depending on the, you know, the political mix in the General Assembly, uh, we could have gotten an outcome that would not be consistent with the will of the majority of workers uh, in the state of Illinois. And in states that have, as Frank noted earlier, gone even beyond limiting the right to organize, but dictated what could be bargained, uh, and, uh, and, and in doing so, actually limited the benefits that could accrue to workers through bargaining, that, those outcomes occurred even though the majority of workers uh, in those states uh, were supportive of collective bargaining. Uh, and therefore, they really had no voice whatsoever uh, as to what the process and, and what the rules were going to be. It was simply taken out of their hands. Uh, so therefore, if we want to make sure that uh, workers have a voice in determining what the rules are going to be when they're in the workplace that govern how they work, it's important that they uh, are empowered, if you will, with a vote uh, to protect that relationship and not leave it to the whims of evolving political change uh, and the calculus of simply a majority of, uh, you know, of legislators or who happens to sit in the governor's seat. Uh, it, uh, really, that process that's been used in places like Iowa and Wisconsin and other right-to-work states, to a large extent, really have subverted the will 
of the workers in those states. Um, so in that regard, um, I think an amendment like this is something that's, uh, that's critically important. Right. Yeah. And of course, Illinois is not immune to those kind of, you know, political changes. I mean, I think a, a good example may be our neighbors to the north in Wisconsin, right, who I think, you know, a decade ago, or I'm trying to remember exactly when the when the uh, big changes there happened in Wisconsin with the uh, attack on public sector workers' rights, I think Wisconsin would probably probably been considered a relatively friendly state to uh, unions and so on. But then we saw the attack that happened there. And, you know, so that's, uh, I think, a, a, maybe a good example or a good warning for what could happen in Illinois potentially down the road. Well, certainly, um, certainly agree. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I, I think, as Frank said really well, we have constitutional rights, fundamental rights uh, that we, we expect to, uh, you know, we expect to, to have protection against state interference, really, that the state will not obstruct uh, our right of speech and the state will not obstruct uh, religious liberties. Uh, these are important fundamental elements of living in a democracy. Uh, it seems, we would argue, um, that work is as fundamental a human activity uh, as exists, and it's critical to, uh, to so many people's well-being. Uh, this is a case of, of saying that that right uh, really does warrant uh, constitutional uh, protection. Um. You you mentioned something I thought was interesting too a minute ago about you, you mentioned teachers in particular as an example. I'm just wondering. I think this is uh, would be outside the scope of this particular amendment. But you know, there's been for a long time uh, a problem where there's been limitations on what teachers could bargain over in their well, at least well, I think it's primarily actually targeted at, at Chicago, the Chicago Teachers Union. I don't know if that's actually uh, affects other uh, teachers unions in the state, but there's been this long, you know, problem of like issues like class size and so on being outside of the, you know, bargaining power of the, of the union. This would this affect that in any way? Um, Jerry, so I, I think you're referring to uh, legislation that had been passed uh, that restricted just Chicago, what Chicago teachers, uh, what CTU members could bargain over. Uh, there were certain elements like class size that were uh, unilaterally really left to the uh, employer. And so they were, they were removed uh, from those items that could be collectively bargained. Now that law has been repealed. So the current law in Illinois does allow uh, teachers in Chicago to uh, to really bargain uh, on on the issues that other teachers have always been able to bargain over in the state under the education law that includes uh, that includes class size. Uh, however, uh, this amendment would in fact protect the right to bargain uh, over again the issues that are uh, seen as important uh, and would prevent any sort of legislative move that would diminish uh, the ability to do that. So uh, if in the future there was, again, uh, some uh, effort to restrict the rights of teachers in, uh, in Chicago and they wanted to, and legislators wanted to narrow those bargaining provisions, those bargaining items, uh, if this amendment were to pass, uh, it would prohibit that diminishment uh, of, those, of those rights.
Great. So that's a perfect example of how powerful this law, you know, this or this uh, amendment could uh, could be. I, I know that we've been kind of talking about the uh, the amendment and what it would do, but I think we should get directly, of course, to the study that uh, you guys were involved in, um, because your study really points to the economic benefits that could come uh, from this amendment. We're going to uh, post a link to your study up on the Labor Express uh, Facebook page as well, so people will be able to access it. Um, but I just to, uh, you know, talk about a few of the benefits that you highlight uh, in the study. I'm not going to list all of them. There's quite a few, but, you know, things like the fact that union workers earn 14% more and are 9% more likely to have health insurance than non-union workers, lower percentages of people living in poverty when they're in unions. Uh, and they also contribute 8% more uh, in state income taxes. Um, so there's a benefit both to the workers themselves and actually to the state as well, right? Yeah, certainly. Um uh, collective bargaining delivers great value for individual workers and for the state of Illinois as a whole. So as you, as you mentioned, for workers, it boosts wages and enables greater access to health, retirement, and paid leave benefits. Uh, but for the state as a whole, by strengthening the middle class, collective bargaining drives consumer spending, uh, increases tax contributions, and reduces reliance on government assistance programs. So that's good for the middle class, that's good for public budgets, and it promotes workplace safety. Now, our study also compares Illinois as, as we currently exist to, to states that have weakened or, uh, collective bargaining um, in one way or another, and, and what we find is that uh, workers in Illinois, regardless of union membership, earn about $7,000 more per year in incomes, and they have, they're more likely to have health insurance, and they're more likely to own their homes than in these states that have weakened collective bargaining, uh, not to mention they're also 32% less likely to suffer workplace fatalities. So the amendment would protect income for workers, promote workplace safety, and, um, and promote a strong economy. And, and that's, uh, I think, one of the reasons why the amendment was put on the ballot by a bipartisan supermajority in the Illinois General Assembly, including by a majority of Senate Republicans. It's, it's not a left or right issue. It's a workers' rights issue. Right. And I, I like that you point that out because it it's basically you're talking about like a ripple effect that happens in the economy. So you, if, you high, if, you, if you have a high percentage of workers who are in unions and even just the uh, an easier ability for workers to organize if they feel necessary, that actually creates a ripple effect where the wages for workers across the board end up being higher, even if they're non-union. I think that's right, and, if, and Bob, I'll let you, you, you go after me because I have two thoughts. Is that uh, one is is the you know the data shows clear links between union membership and better outcomes for workers, and and that's why we're seeing new organizing efforts in the workplace. Uh, and the workers' rights amendment would protect this right to organize and join unions, uh, in particular for uh, folks in the private sector who who may not have had access to a union before. You know, your Starbucks workers and 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 workers at hospitals. Uh, where, where organizing efforts are, are increasing over the past few years. Uh, and the, the amendment will also help ensure that Illinois continues to create high-quality jobs in the state, uh, union or otherwise. And the final point is that by, by you know, keeping politicians out of the items that are best left into private negotiations at the bargaining table uh, and, and preventing those, those the, you know, the whims of, of politicians uh, from weakening collective bargaining, uh, the amendment would promote um, union resource, 
uh, union resources. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is if collective bargaining is weakened, you know, regardless of sector, unions may have fewer resources to organize new members. So, so that means that those unions that represent, you know, both public and private sector workers, um, you know, you may one side, even if even if a law is only meant to address public sector workers or only meant to address private sector workers, if the union represents both and and their resources are weakened, then that hurts the other side of the equation, right? Whoever whoever's left, um, you know, intended intended not to be affected. So uh, there are these downstream effects for members and also for for non-union members as well. Um, so those are my initial thoughts on that. What what about you, Bob? Well, you know, as I was thinking, um, and those were. You know, those are you know, great thoughts. Important to important to put out there. Uh, you know, we know from um, just a ton of, uh, of 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 data, research, experience that you know the last 40 years uh, there's been this you know growing inequality to where it's in a, now at, a, at extreme levels. We know that it's been 40 years of sort of flat uh, wage growth um, for workers. And, and we know that job quality uh, has degraded uh, substantially uh, in that time. Well, that also correlates pretty strongly with union density, um, which uh, you know is is a product uh, because unions operate within a political economy uh, environment, and and we know that the legislative, uh, executive, and judicial environment uh, across the country in the past 40 years has grown very hostile uh, to union organizing, uh, uh, to the rights of, uh, of workers. And the end result is we've seen uh, just how uh, difficult it is uh, for working class people uh, to, uh, uh, to make ends meet, uh, right? To, to uh, you know, climb uh, the economic ladder into the uh, into the middle class. Well, uh, we we also know that there are institutions, there are policies that uh, protect, that promote a middle class lifestyle, that that pr promote a middle class uh, America. And the strongest institution, uh, frankly, that's uh, ever been uh, uh, you know ever been developed in the United States and 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 this isn't really something that most people argue about um, is the labor movement so the labor movement is this very strong institution for providing benefits to the middle class in all the ways that you know Frank's alluding to both in the workplace through bargaining politically uh, you know by uh, getting involved in the electoral process and the labor movement has been the strongest uh, advocate uh, and force for uh, creating greater equality amongst the classes, for redistributing uh, some of that wealth that, that workers uh, generate, um, uh, you know, more democratically uh, in the economy. And, and then there are all the, the great spillover effects that and, you know that Frank was talking about. So. Uh, uh, so I, you know, I think policymakers should be really, and, and citizens should be thinking, well, what institutions are going to promote a healthy community? What institutions are going to create opportunity? What institutions are going to bring uh, democracy into the workplace that are going to give workers uh, a, a, a voice uh, in, in this activity that really most defines us as human beings and consumes so much of our, so much of our life? 
and therefore we should be promoting these institutions and we shouldn't do anything that's actually going to weaken the, the capacity of, uh, and as Frank said, uh, you know, by reducing the resource base that an institution uh, has, the labor movement particularly, uh, to, um, to impact the political process and to be a voice of workers in the workplace. Uh, those institutions really should be protected because that's how we built the middle class in this society. It was not done by simply leaving it up to the marketplace, leaving it up to employers. It took a strong countervailing power like the labor movement to really insert the, the views of workers to generate uh, not only a, a middle class economy, but also a more democratic uh, society. And I think this amendment, you know, uh, really continues uh, in that tradition. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a brief station ID break, but when we return, more of my interview with Bob Bruno and Frank Manzo about the proposed Illinois Workers' Rights Amendment. In the second half of the interview, we discuss what the forces are that are opposing the amendment's passage and the likelihood that it will pass. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. On the first half of tonight's program, I aired the first part of my interview with Robert Bruno of the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign's School of Labor and Employment Relations and Frank Manzo, the Executive Director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. We were discussing the proposed Illinois Workers' Rights Amendment, which Illinois voters are being asked to vote on this November, as well as the study that both been co-authored on the likely economic impact of the study called the Workers' Rights Amendment and its impact on protecting quality jobs in essential industries in Illinois. In the second half of the interview, I asked Bob Bruno and Frank Manzo to talk about who in the state is working against passage of the amendment. You will hear Bob mention an organization called the Illinois Policy Institute, or IPI. This should not be confused with Frank's institution, the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. The IPI, instead, claims to be the voice for taxpayers in Illinois, but it's basically a corporate-funded think tank that is very much anti-worker rights, anti-pensions, anti-public education, anti-union, etc., Later in this part of the interview, I asked Bob and Frank about the likelihood of the amendments passing. So I'm curious uh, if you could talk a little bit too about, you know, what's the opposition to the amendment look like? Like, what, who are the people that have been uh, trying to push back? I know there's been, uh, in some of the press coverage already, the claim that, you know, the, if this does pass, that it will probably be challenged in the courts uh, uh, later on as well. I'm curious if you could just mention a little bit about, you know, who's, who are the forces that have been really trying to prevent this from happening? You know, from, um, from news reporting, it, 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 it appears uh, that the Illinois Policy Institute has, has raised objections and, and through their uh, legal alarm, um, uh, they had previously gone to court uh, unsuccessfully, but, uh, but continued to uh, threaten to challenge uh, the amendment. Uh, and, there, and therefore, the donors to the IPI, which we're not always going to have access to, uh, are going to be uh, certainly uh, uh, view the amendment as hostile uh, to their interest. Uh, I will note, however, that despite some, uh, despite some uh, uh, objection raised uh, uh, within the in employer uh, community, um, you know, I really have not seen any uh, large uh, 
uh, opposition um, 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 and a, a surface uh, against the uh, amendment. There, there may be, you know, there, there are, I think, employers who would rather not see workers uh, have, uh, uh, have rights in the workplace. Uh, but the, there doesn't appear to be, at least from my vantage point, Frank may know differently, um, a really well-resource-coordinated uh, effort uh, to block the amendment. And I will also point out, and I like to do this whenever we're talking about this, you know, uh, Frank and I, we're doing research, right? And I'm at the University of Illinois. I'm, I'm not involved in any uh, campaign. We're going to do analysis. We're going to do research. And then we're going to put that information out there for people to use um, and, and let the advocates sort of do what they need to do uh, uh, on the issue. Uh, but what Frank and I can tell you, and Frank's got probably some other research he could he, he could reference. Uh, when you when you go when you look at the good social science or the economic literature on the on the effects of the labor movement, uh, really it's overwhelmingly uh, positive. Uh, in other words, you're not going to find uh, amongst people who are doing good objective analysis who are going to come out and say, "Yeah, the labor movement is really bad for workers," or "The labor movement is really bad." for community. There is no opposing side to the data. There's no opposing side to the research. There's, there, there's not a, uh, an effective challenge to the analysis that Frank and I have done and, and, and others have done. Um, you just don't see that emerging. Uh, it tends to come from groups that have, uh, if you will, a kind of uh, you know, horse in the race and it, it's more ideological uh, the, the arguments um, uh, that are raised uh, uh, against strengthening the, the labor movement. Um, and frankly, I, you know, I, so it's hard to legitimize any of the, uh, uh, the, the counter arguments, um, you know, let alone really be certain, you know, where the opposition is coming from uh, beyond uh, what's been publicly reported about the Illinois Policy Institute. Frank, do you have yeah. something you want to add? Yeah. Yeah, I'll just put a finer point on it is that the, the, the groups that are opposed to this opposition appear to be very similar to, if not the same as the groups who were promoting the weakening of collective bargaining across the country in the 2010s. And, and that's, you know, kind of this network of, of the amount of state billionaires and, and corporate special interest groups that, that are, you know, more interested in downsizing and shipping jobs overseas and, and, and trying to pay less in taxes on their end than, than a middle-class family or even a small business pays. So it's a lot of those same characters, um, although albeit not at the same level here in Illinois as we saw with the intensity in, in neighboring states um, you know, less than a decade ago. Well, I've had you guys on the phone for quite a while. I appreciate you taking on so much time. There's one last question I thought I'd ask on this, which is in this study, you mentioned uh, the public approval of unions is, is at a, like a six decade high, right? There's, I think it's over 70% now in, in recent polling has shown uh, support for, for organized labor, which is a real exciting development. I, I should point out, I think, as far as I'm aware, at least historically, it's never, it's always been a majority of, pe uh, of people in the country who've been supportive of unions, but the, to have it now, you know, uh, you talk about two thirds majority practically of, you know, people uh, supporting unions is, is an exciting thing. I'm wondering if, 
there's any if if that's reflecting too in the possibility of this passage of this particular amendment i don't know if there's been any polling i haven't seen any polling specifically related to this myself i don't know if you guys have any sense of you know how likely this is to pass yeah so um and actually since this study came out uh another gallup poll uh was released which showed that 71 percent of americans or about seven and ten americans approve of labor unions and that's the highest uh, level in six decades um, in addition, uh, about seven out of every 10 union members say that their membership is extremely or very important to them. And so very, very high level of, of support and, and within unions, um, you know, high level of intensity of support for their own union. Uh, and then at the same time, we have an increase in not only organizing in the last few years, but the success rate of organizing new workplaces. So in Illinois uh, last year, unions had a 60% success rate in organizing new members um, and new workplaces. And that's, again, that ranges from Starbucks to art museums to hospitals to cannabis dispensaries. So uh, we've seen this shift uh, in, in favorability towards unions and a growing uh, movement towards unionizing. Um, and then with respect to this amendment itself, I also haven't seen any uh, polling, but one would suspect that, that uh, favorability for unions in Illinois uh, at least mirrors the, the national average. So it, it, it would, uh, it, I, would, I think it's likely that about 7 in 10 Illinois residents also approve of labor unions, uh, but it's a question of do they want to enshrine the right to unionize and to collectively bargain in the Constitution, and that's a question that will be answered in November. So. Um, I think that's my answer to that question. Yeah, that's a good response, Frank. Um, well, you know, Jerry, what I would add, and, and you know, Frank's right, there's no uh, sort of publicly reported uh, polling. Clearly, the political environment uh, seems uh, um, more advantageous uh, for uh, such an amendment uh, here in Illinois, uh, given the uh, large, uh, you know, the, the very high uh, public approval numbers. Uh, uh, you know, that, uh, that said, that doesn't necessarily equate uh, uh, to, uh, you know, how people will vote. Uh, obviously, they'll be subjected to um, lots of campaigning and, um, and pro and con, uh, and, and, you know, a number of factors uh, can influence what people ultimately do. I, I, I will note uh, that historically, when union approval is north of 60%, and as you say, it's near a six-decade high. And by the way, if you if you were uh, narrowing that uh, to that 1834 group, uh, where you would expect to see the emergent sort of working middle class uh, develop, uh, that rate, the rate of approval, is even higher. Um, and, and that is at, a, uh, at, a, at an historic high. And when we see numbers that high, uh, we, we don't usually get, um, you know, level, the, the, uh, extreme levels of, of, of anti-union uh, policy. We don't, you know, typically see movements to undercut the rights of workers when uh, public opinion is uh, as high as it is now. Now, that's not the same as Saying that you can then, you know, pass a constitutional amendment, it's, uh, but but the research is certainly suggestive that this is the kind of environment in which an amendment like this one uh, would pass. 
And we do know that uh, when, at least when workers are asked uh, about their support for labor unions, um, I mean, there's clearly a, a, uh, a gap between the rate of unionization and the amount of support that's actually out there. And that has been increasing. So meaning that the percentage of workers who support and want a union uh, but don't have one uh, has increased uh, significantly over the past couple of decades, suggesting that if you gave them a way, a non-threatening way to, to, to strengthen the, the, the right to organize and to bargain, and that's what a you know, and that's what a democratic right of a vote will do. You don't have to take on your employer. You don't have to risk being punished, fired, disciplined. Um, you, you simply go to the polls uh, and, and you vote. Um, all of that is, is suggested that if workers get that opportunity, uh, they will take it to close that gap. Um, so I think those are a couple of positive indicators that this amendment has a, you know, it has a chance to pass. It's never easy to pass these things, uh, but... Um, I think there is some uh, you know, positive uh, signs uh, for it. Well, I really appreciate you both taking out time to talk to me. I could talk to you guys forever. There's so many other questions I'd love to ask. I'd love to talk about the new organizing that's going on because that's where this, you know, if this amendment passes, that's where the real benefit will come in if there's uh, new organizing that's spurred on and that's successful. Uh, but we've already taken way too much time, and, and I, that just means, gives me a good excuse to to get back to you guys, uh, you know, down the road and talk more about that, particularly if this passes. I would definitely like to follow up and talk about that too and, and what that means. So. Uh, uh, thanks so much for doing this. You're very welcome, Jerry. Appreciate the good work that you do, and I'm sure Frank and I would be happy to come back on the program. A big thank you to Bob Bruno and Frank Manzo for taking out time for that interview. That study that they were involved in is linked up at laborexpress.org, laborexpress.org. So if you want to Actually, uh, take a look at the full study. Go there, and you can find it right there. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. On the last episode of Labor Express, I mentioned that what would have been an historic railroad strike seemed to have been averted. Anytime the 12 unions representing railroad labor are demonstrating some semblance of unity and are considering a strike that could shut down the nation's rail lines is historic for a variety of reasons. For one, railroad worker strikes are very rare. The last in the U.S. was in 1992, and I think there's only been a few before that. They are rare because of the combination of the immense power of the near monopoly of the freight rail corporations, the anachronistic division of railroad employees into so many unions, the equally anachronistic railroad-specific labor laws in the U.S., and the willingness of the U.S. federal government to intervene. But above all, what makes the potential of a railroad strike so significant is the possibility of grinding the nation's entire economic system to a halt. Workers in a few key industries, the ports, the railroads, and the warehouse sector in particular, are potential linchpins for the entire economy. And so these workers in these industries have tremendous potential power. But the unions that represent these workers, other than the ILWU and the West Coast, which has been, I'd say, more conscious of this, but most of these unions have rarely demonstrated any willingness to actually flex that muscle to use that power. However, the working conditions for rail workers have deteriorated so badly in recent decades that it seems as if the rail unions had finally had enough. 
Jonah Furman of Labor Notes was a guest on a recent episode of the Valley Labor Report out of Huntsville, Alabama. They're a fellow member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I actually think they're one of the best programs on the network. Host of the program, Jacob Morrison, talked with Jonah about the seemingly averted strike. I need to point out that the members of all 12 rail unions now need to actually vote to accept the tentative deal, and this is far from certain. The interview with Jonah was about 30 minutes long. I can only give you a taste of it here tonight. In this first part of the interview, Jonah discusses the dire working conditions railroad workers face that led them to nearly strike. The big picture thing is a term called precision scheduled railroad, uh, which is basically the rail industry's version of lean production. So if you look at one of the one of the good measures of this is in the past six years, something like 25% of rail workers on different lines have been cut. So, you know, do more with less. This is this is the name of the game. And in the rails, it's much more severe because low functioning rails, while a big deal for the economy, these are monopolies, right? So you can't just set up another rail line. There are six carriers involved in national negotiations, but for the most part, they all cover different geographies and they have their own customers. And those are pretty locked in. You can't really just switch to trucks for most of this stuff or to boats for most of this stuff. You basically, you know, businesses have, the supply chain has to rely on freight rail. So freight rail decided a few years ago, it has to do with, you know, trying to squeeze more money out of it. Warren Buffett taking over one of the big companies, for example, they decided we're just going to cut, cut, cut. And we're going to cut staff even if it's dangerous. We're going to cut staff even if service goes down. And they really don't have much to lose in cutting this because there's no competition. No one's going to step in. And unless, you know, this is where we're hitting a choke point, unless somebody speaks up like the rail workers or if businesses, I mean, there's businesses that are bankrupted by this this, um, worse functioning rail system. And it's really been a drop off in the past five to 10 years. So that's why we're seeing it come to a head. And this moment in particular has to do with how railroad negotiations work. So they're under these five-year contracts, except under rail labor law, which is separate from everything else, you basically are used to these extended agreements that they expire, quote unquote, but they remain in place for years. So we're actually three years behind when the last contract was up uh, for the railroad workers. So the the biggest issue that you mentioned, or one of the biggest issues that you mentioned, is that the uh, that they're cutting staff on the rail lines, and and they're cutting staff to even what one person operating one of these huge trains. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, this is this has been a big part of the fight um, for years. Is the two man crews, which is you have the unions and the workers are just fighting to maintain that on a huge locomotive, you know, could be like a two mile long train, you have more than one person working. I mean, at bare minimum, it's just what if somebody, you know, passes out or gets sick or anything happens to the one driver, you have just huge, I mean, it's hard to express how dangerous that is. Um, But from the company's perspective, they're like, that's a write-off. If there's an accident, that's less likely. And we get to cut half the half the engineers. So, you know, for them, that's that's just fat. And what about, uh, you know, and, and so you, you spoke to the dangers of that really well, I think. What about the pay issues there? That it, how long has it been since railroad workers got a raise? Well, there is, you know, there's built-in raises into these contracts. People keep saying this is the most, you know, the the biggest raise we've seen in 40 years on the rails. It's 24% over five years. So, 
you know, it's less than 5% a year. It's not, uh, and they keep talking about, oh, it's a 14% raise immediately. Well, yeah, it's partly because they've been out of raises for the past three years while the thing's been expired. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. Some some rail workers pay is a big issue. For a good chunk of the workers who are upset, they're sort of like, you're throwing money at the problem, but the problem is that I never have a day off, never see my mm-hmm. family. I would trade, you know, I've had people tell me they would trade X amount of dollars just to get time, you know, and whatever that looks like, sick days, more vacation uh, less punitive uh, scheduling. You know, the part of the issue is that if you take a day off, you're punished for it for six months. You can get fired. There's people who have been hospitalized for COVID and face severe discipline to the point of losing their job. So, you know, that kind of, you can't really throw 20 grand at right. that. And something that's really interesting about pay on the rails right now is you'll see these rail companies right now are offering for new employees like ten to $20,000 starting bonuses. And that might sound nice, but what that means is they cannot get people in the door and they cannot keep them. They're willing to throw however much money they have just to trick you into taking this job. And there's a lot of people who qualify and get in and realize, oh, I can't live. Like, I can't see my family. I can't do anything right. else outside the job. Can you um, make make a little bit more explicit what those policies are? Because, you know, the, like you mentioned, the... For most of these people that we are hearing from, uh, from you know the only people that are actually talking to the workers that are affected by this, which is going to be you, which is going to be Mel Bure and Max Alvarez at the Real News and the Working People Podcast, um, you know the pay is not even the the primary thing. It, it's that they want time off. They want they want to be able to uh, not be punished for getting sick. Or going having to go to the hospital. Can you, um, can you make a little bit more explicit? What are those? What are those policies? Uh, how much time off? How much sick time do they or don't they get uh, working on the railroads? Yeah. So I would just say it's 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 complicated. There's 120,000 workers here in all these different unions, different crafts. So different workers have different issues. But the the operating crafts, mainly the people who ride on the trains and things like that, and who are on long long term schedules, big travel schedules, things like that, the they get no sick days, and they get something like 30 days in the year off. But you need to think of that like regular workers, Monday through Friday, get two days for a weekend every week, right? So right there, that's 104 days. They get 30, they don't have 104, there's no weekend. (laughs) And when you say they don't get it, it doesn't mean that they're working literally every day, but you have to, if you miss a call, you're on call. And if you miss Mm -hmm. a call, you are very close to getting fired. Now there was on one of the rail lines, there was this new policy called high vis, which basically is high visibility, meaning you gotta be there all the time that just implemented harsher penalties for missing a call or not being available when you're supposed to be on call. To the point of, if you miss it, you could lose your job. You could have it for 20 years and lose your job if you miss a couple calls or you get too sick or you whatever, you violate this, this points policy. So essentially your life as a railroader, especially increasingly as there's less staff available is you're sitting next to the phone. You can't make a plan that we're going to go out to dinner. You can't make a plan that we're going to go take a trip mm-hmm. for a night. I can't visit someone out of state. I might not be able to go to a wedding because you're by the phone and you need to be able to get to the yard in you know X amount of time. And if you don't, 
you're racking up points on your discipline. And if you hit X points, you are out of the job or you are severe, you know, you, you have to take six months with no time off at all. So that's that's the big picture of it. And on top of that, there's no sick time at all. So that's only days that you have are can use of your 30. And most a lot of them have to be scheduled in, in advance. There's different rules for different groups, but you know, you can't, it can't be like I'm sick and I can't come in. And especially during a pandemic. I mean. What does that mean? It means if you get COVID or think you might have it, there's no option to say, I can't come in. The option is you go in and get everyone sick or you risk your entire job, which is obviously ridiculous in any time. But right. when there's mass amount of sickness that we're supposedly trying to suppress, you know, um, so so that's the basic situation is, is you're you're just on call all the time. Um, and when and, you're on call, are you getting paid while you're not working, but you're on call? No, I mean, I don't know the exact details for people, but it's not like you're on the clock getting working the job. You could wait for a job for X amount of time. There's also all these details of like, you know, every time you start a, a trip, you get you get paid for it. So they make the trips longer and longer. So you have fewer starts, right? Like they manipulate the. Th You'll see, for example, one thing you've seen over the past few years is that trains, literally the trains are getting longer. They're getting three or four miles long each train because they want to hitch as much cargo to each train because they're trying to maximize the scheduling, maximize, you know. So you have, uh, there's a lot of complaints about blocked rail crossings. Like you have a rail crossing in a town that a train is just sitting on, either because it's so long that it takes forever to get past it, but also because it's just parked because they don't have enough maintenance guys to come fix it so we can operate again. So you have like roads in small towns that are just blocked by freight cars because they're not hiring enough people to move the cars. So, you know, we are at a level in the industry of just like people have described it as near collapse, um, right. not just for the workers quality of life, but like the supply chain thing is not just factories aren't putting out enough and we can't get supplies from China or whatever it is. It's also we can't move freight in this country because the companies make more money by not moving freight efficiently than by moving wow. it efficiently. And, you know, speaking some more to this to this human toll, and then I, I want to talk about I want to contrast that with how these companies are doing. But you retweeted a couple people this morning or this one person twice this morning. Um and this is on Twitter. It's anonymous, you know, so all those caveats. But I, you know, this this tracks with our understanding of the situation. Uh, this t at two person cruise on Twitter, you retweeted them, Jonah, saying, uh, quote, I missed a call once while I was on call. So I, I missed a call to go into work while I was on call. I accidentally left my phone on silent. It cost me 15 of my 30 career points. I would have to work. 14 days on call in a row four times to get those points back. That's 56 days on call to make up for one missed call. Railroads think this is okay. And then the other one that he said is, quote, to witness the birth of my child, I took a day off. This is the same person. This is a railroad worker. It cost me four of my 30 career points. I had to work 14 days on call to get those points back. Railroads think this is fine and reasonable. And, you know, this is the, these are the kinds of things that, that people are coming out with. You know, like, I the, the railroad is trying to make me not witness the birth of my child. Like, that's in, that's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and again, it's like, it's immoral, but it's also 
a disaster. It's 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 a disaster waiting to happen for the economy, for whatever system you think that the freight rail is supposed to support. You can't run a system like that forever. You know, uh, mm-hmm. when this generation of people who are there's some people who are like, look, I'm I'm pop committed. Things have gotten so much worse in the past five years, but I can't get out because this is my whole. You know, I can't possibly switch 20 years into my career, 30 years into my career, but you're not going to get a new generation of railroaders with these conditions. And if you right. don't get it, and if the companies are incentivized not to get a new generation of railroaders because they want to keep costs down and half of what they do is just stock buybacks anyway, and they're a monopoly, so they're not going to lose the business. Mm. What's the end game here? I mean, you have to have an industry that can run, but no one involved is incentivized to run it, except when we get within 36 hours of a national rail strike. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. As I said earlier, that is only a short exit of the full interview of Jonah Furman of Labor Notes by Jacob Morrison of the Valley Labor Report. Later in the interview, Jonah offers his thoughts on whether the rail workers are likely to accept the tentative deal, and it's, that's a very interesting discussion. I really encourage you to check it out. There's a link to the full episode of the Valley Labor Report up at laborexpress.org, so check it out there. You won't be disappointed. Jonah, of course, is always very insightful, and the Valley Labor Report is truly an excellent program. Well, that's all the time we have tonight for this program. So Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. Those expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pifford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Yeah, this one's for the workers who turn out and 